All right. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope you're enjoying your Maggiano's lunch. Welcome to our first program of the year. Uh, my name is Tony Smaniato, and I'd like to welcome you along with my co-chairs, Marjorie Kurkowski from JLL and Jerry Moore from Banco Popular or Popular Community Bank, uh, our program's chairs for 2014. Um, we've got a lot of interesting topics slated for this year. We're mulling around a lot of great ideas. Uh, as part of our plea with you last year. We've su you've submitted a lot of great ideas. We've had a good, strong committee put together for this year, so we've got a lot of great topics. We're sensing a lot of interest to continue bringing you product, uh, programming about workplace, uh, technology, speed of change, and most importantly, the economy, jobs, etc. So we're trying to meet all those demands for uh, program ideas. Next month, we've got uh, the authors of a controversial new book on planning uh, called Planning Chicago. We're going to be welcoming... Um, uh, John DeVries, who's the Marshall Bennett Institute director at Roosevelt University, and, and Professor Brad Hunt, who just written a book about planning in Chicago and the fact that the city hasn't had a comprehensive plan since 1966, and they think it's going to have a profound effect on how uh, the economy works going forward and location strategies going forward. So we thought it would be uh, applicable for, uh, to bring to Cornette. So the first 25 members that register for that luncheon will receive a signed copy of their new book called Planning Chicago. Uh, continue to monitor the websites and our e-blasts for other information. If you have input for us on programs, please send it in. Uh, today's program is being podcast, and the slides uh, will be uploaded as well. So uh, if any of you want to visit this presentation at a later time or refer it to colleagues, you can do so through our website. Uh, we encourage your feedback as always, so please fill out your Q&A form at the end. And uh, I'd like to give a couple quick thank yous. One is to Ivan Baker with the uh, Village of Tinley Park for coming out today and sponsoring our event. As you know, Ivan sponsors uh, frequently our, our lunch events. We didn't have the race car this year because it's, uh, it's downtime in the uh, NASCAR world, right, Ivan? And uh, we'd also like to thank R.J. Brennan, who uh, past chair and past uh, president of our chapter, who uh, has always been a great conduit for us work working with the Federal Reserve to set up this uh, very popular program every year. So, back by popular demand. We've got a couple great guys, uh, a couple senior economists and uh, economic advisors with the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Uh, I guess we all wish our companies would be named every five minutes on CNN and various news reports around the world, uh, but theirs is. So, they bring to us today a very popular program, which is uh, their attempt to try to predict the economic future over the, uh, the next year. Um, I'd like to then, therefore, welcome Two great guys who support us all the time, Mr. Bill Strauss, Mr. Rick Mattoon. All right. Thank you, guys. You're Thank you, up. Tony. Yep. Um, so happy to join you uh, on this day, and I'm glad that uh, the weather worked out that we didn't get hit as we had earlier in the week, because I think it would have just been, uh, you know, table of four up upstairs or something. Um, but just thought I would talk about uh, how the economy is looking in the upcoming year. Uh, having done this now for a number of years, uh, you now have the luxury of kind of looking back at what I said uh, the previous year. So um, you recall when we met in January of last year, uh, we had just started the, the big tax increase, this fiscal cliff, uh, and, the, and, the, and the discussion about sequestration. Uh, there was all this, this, this doom and gloom about the fact of the probability of the economy going into a recession was quite high and so forth. I kind of poo-pooed a lot of that, uh, looking at what was happening with that credit spread and how what that credit spread was suggesting with regard to some of this risk for the economy's growth. Um, and as it turned out, it was fairly accurate. The economy didn't collapse. It kind of muddled through. Uh, expectation last year was that the economy uh, would expand at a trend rate of growth, uh, that growth would improve in 2014, is what I said last year. Uh, the employment would continue to, uh, to expand, but unemployment would only come down gradually, uh, leaving it still at very high levels. That inflation would be a non-issue, uh, that we still have tremendous slack in the economy that would keep inflation under control, and that manufacturing would be experiencing something close to a trend rate of growth and improvement happening in the following year, uh, this year. So let's take a look at, at how uh, things have materialized, because all in all, that's very similar to uh, what exactly transpired. Uh, the economy's growth, the value of real GDP, 
Uh, start off the year very slow. Uh, here's the fourth quarter of last year. This is the first quarter of the year at less than 1%, uh, uh, or just over 1%. And then it accelerated so that by the, fourth, by the third quarter, we had a number for real GDP that was over 4%. Uh, but one thing you can notice is that on a year-over-year -year basis, that growth is uh, much slower than that, uh, at, a, at, a, at roughly a 2% rate of growth. Um, so the economy, all in all, came in right around what we think of as trend, around 2 to 2.25%, two at least through the third quarter, but appears to have accelerated. And some people have gotten really excited about that third quarter number. As you can see, that 4%, uh, you know, it's been a, a number which we haven't seen too often during this recovery. Uh, but I'm also going to discount that quite heavily because when you look at the contribution to that 4.1% GDP growth, a very significant portion of that came from inventory accumulation. So these were goods that were produced and in essence not sold in the marketplace, uh, which suggests that unless you see some torrid increase in demand in the future quarters, some of that increase in inventories will suggest that production in the fourth and first quarter might not need to be as strong as it otherwise would be, that maybe production got ahead of sales. In fact, there's a statistic that underlies that, which is just basically GDP removing the change in business inventories. And when you do that, you come up with the stuff that's sold, what's called final sales. And when you look at that, you could see that that pattern for the year, all in all, is pretty flat, growing at about that 2% rate of growth. So growth has continued around the low end of trend, but again, uh, it is not collapsed. But again, that surge, I'm, I'm, I'm holding off right now, thinking that that's going to be anything of material, uh, materially increased. Um, but one other indicator that kind of suggested this increase in, in opportunity, production, and so forth, is the Chicago Fed National Activity Index. Uh, uh, this is an indicator that when it's at reading a level of zero, uh, it means that uh, the economy is growing near a trend rate of growth. It came towards the end of, of the year, November is our most recent reading for that, that showed a bit of acceleration, a bit of improvement. So maybe the fourth quarter might not be as much of a payback as one might think coming off of that very strong inventory gain that we saw. Um, and then uh, I've showed this chart for a number of, uh, of years now, which illustrates the financial side of the marketplace. So here we're looking at the Fed balance sheet. In this case, are the liabilities of the Fed. Um, and, and our main liability uh, are all this significant increase in red, the deposits that are being held at, at financial institutions that are not being lent out. Um, and this illustrates that the you know, willingness to borrow, willingness to lend, while it's showing some improvement, we're still very far from thinking about this as a normal situation in the financial markets. But the anecdotal reports are increasingly coming in where financial institutions are trying to get as good a return and looking for those economic opportunities. And this view, you'll hear some people argue, well, the reason why they're not lending it out is because the Fed is giving them 25 basis points on, on those deposits. I, I just find that you know, unimaginable that you know, somebody who would want to make a loan out into the business sector at 5 6%, uh, would be satisfied getting a quarter percent on, on those monies. Um, I think it's just a matter of how many of these financial uh, decisions are being made with, with increased uh, opportunities and, and better sense of return. Um, with regard to the housing sector, uh, home prices have moved higher. Uh, as you can see, with quite a bit of volatility, they've, in fact, edged a bit lower uh, towards the end of the, end of the uh, year. But still... Uh, there, it's above, it's clear that we've bottomed with regard to the, the housing market, it's on the men, but the pace of that improvement is still all in all being restrained. Sure, we're getting growth that is quite strong in terms of the rate of growth, double digit gains on home prices. Some people are concerned about whether that's gonna lead us into another bubblish situation on home values. You know, in certain markets, I think you, you might wanna be thinking about things like that, but in general, for the U.S. as a whole, I think we're very far away from thinking in, in those terms. What I have up here is the 
National Association of Realtors existing home price index adjusted for inflation. Uh, and what you could see is that our levels that we are at, you know, whether, you know, what we have here in 110,000, 120,000, you know, you'd have to go back over 10 years ago to see prices that were at that level. And, and, and I don't think people were thinking that in 2000, we were in a bubblish situation on homes. Uh, uh, so all in all, I think we still have much more room to grow in terms of those home values. Uh, with regard to production, uh, production on new homes are improving. Uh, but still below the roughly 1.4 to 1.5 million that we think of as our normal demographic suggested uh, opportunity to grow this industry. Uh, so this year, uh, blue chip is forecasting. Now, a blue chip is uh, uh, these roughly 50 professional forecasters that give updates each month on what they think economic data will, will be. For 2014, uh, they're thinking we're going to be about 1.1 million. Uh, with regard to uh, new housing starts. Uh, that is, again, all in all, uh, well below what we think of as a normal rate. So they're saying that we are still going to have to wait well beyond 2014 before this market becomes uh, greater uh, in terms of being a normal market. But of course, one thing that has been very positive as well has been the fact that the equity markets have moved higher. So both equity markets uh, as well as the housing value, these are both helping out in terms of the way people feel uh, with regard to their wealth. Uh, and that definitely has a positive impact on, on spending. Uh, oftentimes we think about a one or, or two percentage point uh, increase uh, for every dollar you'll spend about a penny or two cents uh, of that gain. Um, so people don't automatically spend every single dollar of it, although that was not the case back in the early part of last decade, which is part of what got the housing industry into its trouble, where people were using their homes like an ATM. Historically, it's a much smaller percentage. Um, you can see in real terms, because this one too I've adjusted uh, for the effects of inflation, uh, in real terms we're still uh, below the levels that existed back in, 19, in the late 90s during the tech bubble that was built up uh, at that time. But it definitely improved from where we had been. So what is the outlook? Well, I'll give you a couple of them. So here's the blue chip forecast group. Um, this is the December number. In fact, uh, tomorrow they'll be coming out with their January update. It tends not to move things around too much, but uh, with their most recent number, uh, they see growth coming in for the year as a whole for 2013 at 2.2%. Uh, we're at 2% through the third quarter, so they're expecting fourth quarter to, yes, show a little bit decent growth so that for the year as a whole, we wind up with 2.2%, right around trend rate of growth. And then for this year, growth improves up to 2.8%. So uh, faster growth, it's going to feel better than it has. This will be the fastest growth that we've seen in about four years. Uh, so this is definitely going to be a, a plus uh, if this materializes. The Federal Open Market Committee, your monetary policy deliberating committee for the Federal Reserve, updated their uh, forecast in December. Uh, and we go out even further than blue chip, given the lags in monetary policy. We have to. Uh, and what we see for uh, this year, I should say this year, 2013, uh, again, very similar to blue chip, a little over 2% growth for the year as a whole. And then a little around three and a little over three, both next year and the, or this year and the year after. But interestingly, uh, 2016, the number actually ticks down a bit. And I think this is important to keep in mind because there's been a lot of discussion about whether with this very soft growth that we've been experiencing uh, since the economy began its recovery and expansion in the middle of 2009, whether we have, in fact, built up a lot of pent-up demand, right? All these, for example, people who have delayed making purchases, uh, aging their vehicles, um, uh, kids who have delayed starting their own households, so they're living with mom and dad still when normally they would have gone out on their own. If we can just release that, could that generate growth that would be really superior? Uh, numbers like 4 or 5%. Well, according to this forecast, the way I'm interpreting it, uh, the Fed is in essence saying that maybe that 3% growth is about as good as it gets. So it's decent growth, but again, not incredible growth. 
Um, <clears throat> compare that to historically what we would have expected from a deep recession. So here is a cycle chart where I've indexed the two previous deep downturns for the U.S. economy, uh, the early 80s and the mid-70s, as well as the current cycle in blue to be equal to 100 as the value, and here's the trough quarter. And then I went out 17 quarters. That would take us up through the third quarter of, of last year for, for the current cycle. And what you would see is that, you know, a little over four years after the economy began to recover, uh, both for the mid-70s and the early 80s, the economy was much bigger, about more than 20% bigger than what it was four years earlier. That translates out into a 5% and 4.7% annualized rate of growth each and every year for over four years. That is really how you materially improve the economy. That is how you remove the slack that was built up during the downturn uh, by growing at that kind of rapid pace. Where we are at this point uh, with the data in hand, including the 4.1% in the third quarter, it's averaged out to 2.3%. So that's trend. That's what we should be accomplishing. So for a year and a half, the economy fell between December of 07, June of 09, falling by more than 4%. Well, at a 2% trend growth, 2.5% trend growth, it should have been up by about 3%. So we created a gap of 7% during the downturn. And since that time, all we've done basically is grow at what the economy should otherwise be growing at. That would suggest that even today, there should be tremendous slack in the economy. And I think our labor markets illustrates that. Now, we'll be coming out with the December employment report tomorrow morning at 7.30, but through November, uh, what we see is that, uh, well, the good news is, yeah, we've created a lot of jobs, 7.4 million jobs, which is wonderful. But it also ignores the fact that during the downturn, if that's all we focus on, without stating that during the downturn, we lost 8.7 million workers. We still have yet to recover all those lost workers. And, you know, it's not like our population is going down. Population continues to rise at roughly 1% in the U.S. So we need to be creating jobs. So this doesn't even address the concerns about the labor force growth, which is growing by over a million workers each and every year. So, but the past year, we did add quite a few jobs, about 2.3 million jobs. That's about a million more than what the labor force grew by. So we are beginning to remove slack out of that. But still, at the pace we're at, probably this spring, we will reach a new record high for employment in the U.S. In other words, the remaining difference between the 7.4 and the 8.7, we'll, we'll gain that back probably by the, the spring summer. Uh, and, and when that happens, you know, there'll be celebrations in Washington that you'll hear about it. Trust me, we, there will speeches will be given. We have more people working in the United States than ever before. I'm not going to celebrate. I'll probably pour myself a stiff drink and, and try to drown my sorrows because I will re remember the fact that since 2008, or beginning in 08, each and every year since then, we've added over a million workers to our workforce each year and we're still shy on those. So when you look at measurements like the unemployment rate, it remains very high. Um, we're sitting there at, uh, at 7%. People are happy, you know, 7%. Uh, I can't recall a time when, uh, when I was growing up and all the way through up until a few years ago that we would think that 7% was anything but disastrous for the U.S. Um, this is still a very high unemployment rate. And it even does not take into account a couple of the other concerns that one has, which is the number of people who have withdrawn out of the labor force, because in order to be counted as unemployed, you need to be actively searching for a job. So the discouraged worker phenomena adds to that. Uh, but the other part of this is the, uh, which adds a very significant share to the, uh, that we could add on top of that, are the significant increase in those individuals who are working part-time who would like to work full-time, we'll call uh, part-time for economic reasons. So these are underutilized individuals. Uh, and when you do that, add in the discouraged worker, the marginally attached, 
the part-time workers for economic reasons, uh, it takes the 7% rate closer to 14%. So it practically doubles it uh, uh, in its reading. But the other factor that it, that's very difficult to gain uh, knowledge about and get accurate statistics are is the underemployed workers, the college kids who cannot find a job in the fields that they have studied in and are, uh, not to pick on Starbucks, but are Starbucks baristas at this point. Um, you know, not that it's, you know, uh, not important to make a good, fine cup of coffee off of that barista machine. I don't think you need to have four years of college education uh, to learn how to operate that machine. So that underemployment would be masked because those people are working. In addition, who would be holding those jobs at Starbucks? Uh, you know, probably less skilled workers, less trained workers. So it all kind of gets pushed down the economic rungs of our economy. And when you look at the very high percentage of young people who are unemployed, uh, you can become concerned about what the, that might imply for the future of our labor force. Uh, will they become ever engaged in our workforce? So what is the forecast? Well, with improved growth of 2.8% according to Blue Chip, uh, we see the unemployment rate by the end of this year edging lower, coming down about a half a percentage point from where we are currently. So improved, yes, but still uh, very, very high at 6.5% uh, by the end of this year. Uh, the Fed is, sees a very similar path. Uh, the Fed growth is a little bit faster than blue chip, but not statistically different. Uh, they see growth uh, or unemployment rate being around the mid-6% rate by the end of this year, falling to around 6% by the end of 2015, so only about a half a percent reduction the following year. Uh, and then finally, by the end of 2016, getting into a range where we could begin to think about that finally we'll be back to a normal labor market. So this is the reason why, as I mentioned, I'm not going to be celebrating uh, the, the new record high employment level because I recognize that we're probably still about three years from now before we get our labor market anywhere close to a normal labor market. Long way to adjust, especially given the fact that the recession was now four and a half years ago. Um, and as I had forecast last year, this slack that I say is still out there in large degree is not, it's going to be very difficult to think of putting great inflationary pressures on our economy, you know, especially when you think about the fact that we've got slack, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. You're hearing about Europe that still is being challenged. They're finally out of a recession, but their growth prospects are, are even weaker than the U.S., uh, Asia's growth has been slowing. The question is whether they're turning the tide at all. Um, but nonetheless, the question is, where is this inflationary pressure going to come from? And I just do not see, see it out there. So when you look at the inflation measurements, uh, you know, it's actually disinflation. We've actually fallen below 1%. Even with energy prices remaining elevated, uh, all in all, in real terms, uh, they haven't moved higher but still, they remain, uh, you know, close to $100, $95 a barrel. But one thing that has been positive, and one of the few things we could point to about the economy going forward, is the energy story for the U.S., where natural gas, and particularly uh, the new technologies of hydraulic fracking and, and horizontal drilling, that combination has released reserves that we've known about for quite a while, but now we can access them in a very economical way. And that is making the U.S., in essence, the low-cost energy producer in the world. And this is going to help out tremendously on, on energy-intensive sectors, like logistics, like manufacturing. Um, and, and we're talking about uh, seeing if we can get change. You're, you're hearing, not we, the U.S. is thinking about uh, relaxing the prohibition on exporting oil because the U.S. showed the largest increase in terms of, of oil on the market than any other country in the world last year. Uh, so, uh, but we have a prohibition against exporting oil uh, outside of the U.S. Uh, you can refine it and sell refined products, but the actual export of, a, of a, just a barrel of West Texas Intermediate is prohibited 
uh, by, by law. So they're looking at relaxing that, and that certainly uh, could allow us to use that as a way of offsetting our trade deficit uh, to some degree. This transformation on the use of natural gas uh, is going to be very, very pronounced. Uh, for example, one way of illustrating how this has dramatically changed the relative cost structure of two technologies. Uh, here I have oil prices in the, in the denominator, and I have natural gas prices in the numerator. And between 1994 and 2005, it was about a 13% share, 13.4, was the relative price uh, between those two. That last year fell to 3.8%. Or in other words, natural gas prices are now a third of what they had been relative to oil. So if you have a choice of how do you power your facility, move your products, and you could either fuel up using uh, diesel or an oil-based product or gasoline, or use a natural ga uh, gas product, you know, the, the economics are suggesting that it could, it could be very cost-saving, very effective to do that via natural gas, and we're seeing a lot of movement. For example, any of those cement mixers that you see in Chicago, they are now all being run on natural gas. The entire fleet has been converted. But of course, we know you've, you've seen the, the cabs out there. They kind of look like a, a London taxi, but on steroids. Um, uh, and the reason is, is that you're sitting on the gas tank, the natural gas tank, when you go in, into one of those vehicles. I had a nice discussion when I took a, a cab ride just recently back from O'Hare. I got in one of these things, and uh, I found out tremendous uh, uh, feedback from the user of what they thought about this product. And they all know they were very happy with it. But I, I asked them, so the gas, the, 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 the cylinder that, the, for the natural gas, I'm sitting on it, aren't I? He goes, yeah. Because I saw the trunk. There was that in the trunk, so you have to put it somewhere. That's why they're so large. Um, anyway, removing food and energy prices, uh, we're looking at that disinflation. So, you know, this is not just what's happening on energy that's driving it down. Uh, it's been, again, the general weakness in, in growth. Um, so what is the outlook? Well, according to Blue Chip, uh, the CPI is expected uh, to basically, yeah, it was weaker in, in this year, uh, or 2013, of 1.3%. It moves back higher, so they're suggesting that, yeah, we might have had some energy impact that drove it down uh, with the weakness that we saw in some of the energy markets on prices. Uh, but it's going to come back up. But again, all in all, relatively stable at, at 2%. What is the Fed saying? Well, for their measurement, the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index, uh, they see that remaining below 2% all the way through the end of 2016. And looking at, and that's our, that's our target, is 2%. Um, and for the underlying rate of inflation, that core rate, removing food and energy, also remaining below 2%. So in other words, with that path that the Fed is suggesting of 3% growth for the economy, that's not going to be fast enough to really send inflationary pressures up above 2%. Um, with regard to manufacturing, we're looking at manufacturing coming in, all in all, a little bit softer than trend this year. So that one, I was a, a bit more optimistic than what materialized. Uh, but the year ended on the strong note. And in fact, uh, the expectation is, is that it's going to be above trend for, for this coming year. So, um, and light vehicle sales uh, are continuing to move higher. 11 years is the average age of a light vehicle out there, passenger car, light truck. Um, and, you know, the growth that we're talking about, though, while it's going to move up to levels that we hadn't seen since the Great Recession began, still... Uh, these are very reasonable numbers, but the contribution to our uh, selling rate uh, is going to be about 7% last year. It's only going to be about 3% for 2014. So all in all, getting back up to a more you know, st steady type of growth rate for the auto industry. Um, so here's that chart that I uh, showed last year, which I was using as a way of saying, you know, what me worry when it came to all of these uh, discussions about fiscal cliffs and sequestration and debt ceilings and all that other stuff that uh, seems to be in the news quite a bit. In fact, this credit spread has dipped to levels that are exceedingly low. And in fact, uh, some people who I talk with are actually concerned that maybe it's getting a bit too low. Uh, that would be suggestive of perhaps 
not pricing out the risk uh, for things like the high yield, the, 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 the more risky assets out there, uh, in a proper way, kind of chasing yield. So that, I think, uh, begins to be a bit of a concern about whether there's some misallocation on risk there. But in terms of the thoughts of the economy, uh, if, they, if this group was thinking that the economy has a risk of recession or not meeting its growth opportunities, I would think that that would send the pricing schedule up very sharply. Uh, and we're not seeing that. So uh, all in all, uh, it's suggesting that uh, we'll, it should be all in all steady as she goes. The Fed, um, we've kept the interest rates now down since uh, 2008, so five years at basically zero. Uh, it seems low, and, and, and it is. <laughs> but as I've talked about before, we wish we could have gone lower. Right? Uh, things like the Taylor Rule would have suggested having a policy of minus 4, minus 5%. We, didn't, we couldn't do that. We had a nominal interest. We, we, we knew how we could do it. Right? I mean, how do you have a minus 5% interest rate? Well, for every $100 you have in the bank, at the end of the year, the bank will give you back $95. Right? That's a minus 5%. What would you do if that was happening? Sorry? Keep your money at home. How long did it take you to figure that out? <laughs> I bet it wasn't even a second. Uh, split second he had it worked out. And, and we, 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 we understood that. And that's why we were limited to what we can do with regard to our interest rates. Why, uh, you know, they didn't quite figure that out uh, in Cyprus this year. When, the, when, they, when, they, when they put a negative interest rate on there with the tax they instituted, and all of a sudden they experienced bank runs, which is what would have ensued in the U.S. And, you know, you could imagine what that would have done in the U.S. if we had bank runs, people pulling out. It would have been like watching, you know, the, the old movie, It's a Wonderful Life, and having every single one of our institutions, like the Bailey Building and Loan, as people rush to pull their money out. Uh, and we just didn't want to take that kind of uh, risk to our economy and our financial sector. Um, so what is the outlook with regard to our Fed funds rate? Well, we still think it's appropriate to leave it very low uh, for a bit longer, certainly through the end of this year, uh, and then beginning next year, begin to increase it uh, about basically half a percent next year, up to uh, three quarters of a percent, and then up to another full percentage point the year after. But still, below the roughly three and a half to four and a half percent, this, this kind of uh, area right here, uh, where we think of as the neutral rate for, for monetary policy. So we will still be accommodative, but reducing that level of accommodation as we move forward. Um, but even though we could not take our balance or sorry, our interest rates negative, we did it using alternative policy approaches. Of course, the quantitative easing that the market talks quite a bit about. Um, and, and we have increased that quite substantially, as you can see. Largely now the blue area. The, all this non-blue stuff, that's kind of the lender of last resort that we were doing. It had little to do with the growth of the economy, but more to do with the saving of the economy. So making sure that the markets would not collapse and that we had you know, these markets functioning properly. As you can see, that pretty much came to an end by 2011. And, and right now, in the last year or so, we have, we have really nothing for those purposes. The large increase in the blue is because of our monetary policy objectives of trying to have full employment as well as to have an inflation path of around 2%. So we have increased our monetary base quite substantially uh, from what had been about 800 billion as you can see, uh, we're well over $3.5 trillion. So that has increased by fourfold at this point, uh, you know, more than that. And so the question is, you know, what's, what implications does this have for inflation? Because you will hear people talking about the fact that, well, the Fed is printing money like it's, you know, going out of style. Inflation's around the corner, right? Well, we just have the new $100 bill. Just came out in October. Has everybody seen those with a little blue stripe? Um, costs us about uh, 12 and a half cents, I think, to manufacture it by us, meaning the United States. The Treasury actually makes them. The, the Fed doesn't print them, we, but we buy them from the U.S. Treasury. Uh, and, and properly stated, what the Fed does is we create money. 
uh, through our operations of, you know, buying securities and in lieu of that, giving out money. Um, but all of you do the same thing every time you borrow. You are increasing the money supply. So this is something that's part of our of our uh, uh, structural system with regard to fractional banking, and, and that's what happens. So what you need to keep in mind is that the money supply is, in essence, more than four times, or roughly four times, the size of the Fed balance sheet. And that's what you want to be focusing on when you want to think about inflationary implications. And of course, the problem with the growth of the money supply is that, you know, we're not seeing a lot of lending. And if banks aren't lending, the money supply isn't growing as rapidly as it otherwise would be. Because what we're trying to avoid is what took place in the 1930s, where during the 1930s, uh, the Fed increased the monetary base. Yeah, that's that previous chart with a lot of blue area on it. We increased it, but by not enough. And given all the bank failures that were taking place in the 1930s, rather than seeing the money supply grow from lending, the money supply actually contracted from all the loans that had to be called and as people went under and assets had to be sold at, at significant discounted values, right? How many of you own property in the room? Put your hands up. How many of you could sell? Leave your hands up, please. How many of you can sell your property in one day? Oh, God. You guys would fail my economics class. Tony? Tony got the answer. He's asking a dollar for his mall. Anybody want to offer? You got, you got some, yeah, it's a matter of price. And that's the problem is that if you have to sell in, the, in a very short time frame, you're not going to be happy with the price. But guess what? Neither is the financial institution who has lent, you know, 70%, 80% on the dollar of value, and now they got to sell it at 10 cents on the dollar, they're going to lose, and they wind up going under. So what the Fed has done, uh, and uh, well, before that, so this is what happened to the money supply. Money supply contracted, the great contraction, as Professor Friedman would refer to it. And look what the inflation rate. Did it look at what the Fed was doing with its monetary base and go higher? Inflation always and everywhere is a monetary phenomena. It looks at the, what the money supply is doing, and it went lower. Um, so what's going on now is that the Fed has taken up the monetary base quite sharply, and the money supply has continued to rise, rising at around uh, just over 6% rate, uh, something you want to think about in terms of nominal GDP. And the inflation path has been edging higher, uh, but in fact, not even matching what's been happening on the money supply, and that has to do with all the slack, as I mentioned, in the economy. Uh, so question is, how quickly will the slack be removed out of the economy? How quickly will lending return? They're all on the mend, but the view is it's not going to happen very quickly, and that's the reason why the Fed remains all in all with its very, very accommodative stance. We would love to be wrong with that regard. We would love to be challenged that our policy approach of having low interest rates all the way through 2016 is wrong. What would cause us to be wrong? The economy starts growing more rapidly. And that in that case, you shouldn't have a low interest rate environment when the economy is growing rather than at 3% if it in fact took off and started growing at 4 or 5%. And that would be a great problem for us to have because with that 4 to 5% growth, unemployment rates will fall much more quickly. Government won't need to be spending as much assisting individuals. Tax revenues improve, which would assist the government's uh, debt problems. Uh, all of these would be great problems to have, and it would be a great challenge for us that we'd be more than happy to undertake. Um, but I'm giving you kind of our best view of what we think will likely happen. So when we think about what the upcoming year holds, uh, a l better than what we've seen for the last couple, but not materially. So it's going to feel better. Yes, by when we meet again next year, hopefully you're all having a little bit more of a, of a smile on your face than what we've had this year. Um, but still, with st tremendous slack in the economy, inflation will probably still not be much of an issue. Labor markets will be better than they are today but still nowhere near to be fully corrected. Uh, and again, manufacturing should be 
uh, having a, a fairly decent year. So thank you. Uh, well, thanks for having us again. It's always a pleasure. The problem with having done this numerous times is that I pretty much run out of economist jokes, which is one of the things I always like to do to start any presentation. So I'll use my shortest and quickest, which is simply to say that you should always remember that a person pretty much decides to become an economist when they realize that they don't have enough personality to be either an accountant or an actuary, all right? Um, <laughs> So uh, with that being said, my, the goal of my talk today is that I want to put sort of what Bill talked about in terms of the macro economy into the context of what's happening here in Illinois and Chicago. Um, so the focus of my talk is really to talk about sort of what sort of specific trends or things, how we're doing this race relative to the rest of the country. So one of the things I'm particularly concerned about is, is if you think of this sort of, we're going to get more growth next year, as Bill talked about, not spectacular. How does that translate into Illinois and Chicago? And the problem is, is Illinois and Chicago has been sort of a laggard consistently um, throughout this most recent recovery. Um, we simply are growing at a much slower rate than much of the rest of the country. And it's something that's concerned a lot of economists have looked at this. Because from my own perspective, what I would suggest is particularly a metropolitan area like Chicago has many, many assets that suggest that it should grow at above national trend. Um, it has a favorable business structure in terms of its industry mix. It has a favorable set of assets relative to almost any place in the Midwest. It's arguably the only global city really within the Midwest economy. And yet despite this, what I'm going to show you is Chicago has been lagging pretty consistently um, throughout this period of time. And that is uh, obviously one of the things that's really holding back Illinois' economy. Um, so to begin, um, basically if you saw me last year, the song for Illinois pretty much remains the same. So with that, thank you, goodbye, and uh, remember to get your uh, parking tickets validated on the way out. Um, what I would say about Illinois is at this point is, is that we really have seen much slower growth than the rest of the country. And one of the things that when I look at it and I say, well, what's sort of holding back Illinois' growth? Well, one thing that I think has consistently been a theme that many people have identified is fiscal uncertainty. Um, when you look at both Chicago and Illinois, you have a situation where it's well known that we have very large budget gaps in both economies. The problem is, is that the solution for solving this hasn't really been identified. Um, at this point, at best, we know we have a bad situation. We haven't really known how to fix it. Now, making these things worse, at least on the Illinois level, is several years ago we passed a rather large income tax increase for both personal and business income taxes. The problem is, is that money, when it was, came into the Illinois state government, did nothing really to relieve any of the um, built-up stress within Illinois' fiscal house. So if you think of it, the Illinois budget gap has essentially stayed fixed. We still owe about $7 billion in unpaid bills. We haven't paid down our pension deficit during this period of time. The money that came in through that added increment of, of taxes simply went to filling the money that had been received from the federal government under the, Ameri um, the American Recovery, um, the ARRA program. So what you were doing was backfilling essentially federal funds. So we're essentially no better off right now after we've had this tax increase. The problem is now is, is that we are about to start to roll off this tax increase, at least theoretically. In 2015, the, the tax rates will start to phase back to their old levels. And this creates sort of a fiscal cliff for Illinois, a real problem for Illinois in terms of how we're going to deal with this. Because this is revenue, quite frankly, that at this point, not only do we, is it necessary just to run the government, it's, it seems almost like it's essential. So it's almost impossible to come up with a scenario where you can allow this tax rollback to occur. If you look at Chicago, it's a similar situation. You have very large unpaid bills rolling up. You have large pension obligations that have built up over time. And again, we don't really have a plan for how you pay for this. Now, a number of economists who have looked at this over time have suggested that the biggest problem is uncertainty when it comes to particularly fiscal questions. As soon as business people in particular have a sense that they don't know what the outcome is going to be, it gives them reasons not to make investments. It makes, gives them reasons not to pull the trigger on doing things that they otherwise would do. 
So what I would say right now, the biggest question, if you're a business or even a resident of Illinois, is if you ask the question in 2016, 2017, if you said, to, what is Illinois' business tax structure going to look like? What's our personal income tax structure going to look like? What type of government services are going to be provided? The problem is right now that's a very uncertain outcome at this point. So that uncertainty really creates a lot of havoc, I think, in terms of holding back growth that has been occurring in some of our neighboring states at this point. And <laughs> now I'd like to really just sort of illustrate this through some data. So this is Illinois' unemployment rate relative to the US. And as you can see, we've had bouts in the past where Illinois' unemployment rate, the gap between the Illinois and the US, has run higher. But as you can see right now, we're about 1.5% above the national average. And we've run consistently. It's gotten worse as the recovery has occurred. Um, so Illinois is sort of losing this race of sort of speeding up as the recovery has hit the US economy. If you look at this um, rollback of the tax rates that are going to happen, this is the schedule for when this stuff is supposed to start to fall back. So in 2015, these rates dropped pretty precipitously. And again, given the gaps that are occurring right now in Illinois' fiscal situation, it's hard to imagine how you can let these rollbacks occur, that this higher tax rate somehow is going to probably be made permanent at some point. This is a figure that was put together by the University of Illinois, the Institute for Government and Public Affairs. And what they want to show is, is essentially the magnitude of Illinois' budget gap. So what they do is, is they develop a budget gap figure where they're able to forecast it out to 2025. The important thing for you to realize is if you look at the upper line, what you'll realize is this is assuming the tax rates are extended, that we don't roll back the income tax increases for either business or personal income tax. Even with the tax rates extended, the actual budget gap gets worse over time. All right? um, there's not enough revenue being generated right now in the current Illinois tax structure to meet the current expenditures of, of state government. So this gets worse. If you take these tax rates off, as you can see, it gets much, much worse. All right? So by 2025, you're looking at a $14 billion budget gap in terms of Illinois. And that's not even considering pension obligations at this point. If you look at what also has been really driving it is the fact that Illinois basically has been living off of borrowing for some period of time. Illinois is not a high tax state. And one of the reasons why Illinois has not been a high tax state is because simply we haven't paid for those things that we've been consuming. We simply have sort of been living off of this sort of, um, sort of fanciful accounting over some period of time. And it's opened up a real gap. <laughs> so one of our colleagues at the Chicago Fed wanted to sort of ca characterize how big is this gap. And what he found out is, is from 2000, and if, as a percent of the 2010 GDP for Illinois, there's about 1.9% of GDP gap in terms of what we need to be raising in terms of tax revenues versus what we actually raise. So if you layer this on top, this exercise shows you what happens in terms of Illinois' tax structure relative to our neighboring states. So if you begin here, the gray is Illinois' average tax rates, all right, as a percentage of GDP from this period of time through from 1995 to 2010. As you can see, if you look at the gray bars across all the states, what you'll see is Illinois is actually fairly low in terms of its tax structure. It is, it is either competitive or is slightly better than most of our neighboring states. However, if you add the projected budget gap and the tax increase that was in, enacted, Illinois goes above the line. That's above the line for the US average. And then if you put the, the um, <coughs> budget gap on top of that, it goes significantly above the line. So one way to think of this is this is what we actually should be raising in terms of tax revenues to actually close our fiscal gap. And as you see, well, if you raised all that overnight, it would have a significant effect in terms of Illinois' competitiveness with many of our neighboring states. Now, it isn't that we haven't tried to do something. Um, one of the clear things that happened in December, which many people got excited about, was the pension reform. This will trim $160 billion off of total, uh, total um, contributions to the pension system over the period of time running till 30, 30 years out. So that's a significant amount of money. However, you still have to recognize is even with this this pension reform essentially just bends the curve, all right? So we, the state is still going to have to contribute more money to pensions over time. It simply is not going to have to contribute at quite the same rate. So Illinois is still going to be paying more into the pension funds over time. This also begs the question as to whether or not this will withstand a constitutional challenge. So if the pension reform is then struck down in court, we're really back to square one, and then the state is on the hook again for this entire pension liability, which again is dropping 
driving a lot of the sort of um, you know, unfavorable fiscal conditions in Illinois. Okay, so now, oh, this got a little messed up. Okay, so now let's turn to Chicago and put Chicago in context. So is there anything better happening in Chicago? Well, the first thing I'd point out is Chicago's a really big economy. So Chicago definitely drives Illinois by any, any stretch of the imagination. 77% of the state's gross product. If you look at it as a country, I mean, Chicago is larger than Sweden, Norway, and Poland. I mean, it's a big, it's a big economy, all right? So it has a lot of influence in terms of things. But again, Chicago's economy has been underperforming consistently. So if you look at the same measure, this gap measure between <laughs> Chicago's unemployment rate relative to the U.S., as you can see, Chicago's actually doing worse than Illinois, all right? We're actually more than 1.5% higher than, than the national unemployment rate right now. So Chicago's economy has certainly not done well coming out of this most recent recession and into this recovery. Um, it's had a very, very bumpy sort of path out. If you look at job growth from 2000 to 2013, Chicago does very poorly even against many Midwestern cities. So Chicago's the red line, um, okay? Um, Chicago's the red line, which is being covered over, um, which is Chicago actually lost 3.3% of its jobs from <coughs> 2000 to 2013. As you can see, Cincinnati lost fewer jobs, Columbus expanded, only Detroit and Milwaukee do worse. If you look at Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Pittsburgh, they're all positive. St. Louis, again, slow, grows, um, actually shrinks a little, but not as much as Chicago. And you look at Atlanta, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Denver, they're really growing much, much faster. We're not adding jobs, all right? That's the you know, bottom takeaway in terms of this. If you look at Chicago's industry concentrations, some of the explanation might be in the industry concentrations, particularly in financial services and professional and technical services. They were some of the hardest hit in this particular recession, and they have had a slower path out than, um, than many had expected. The problem is, is that they are growing faster in cities like New York and San Francisco, but they're not growing as fast in Chicago. So we're not getting lift from some of the key sectors of our economy were most heavily overweighted. As you can see, the other ones are transportation and warehousing, wholesale trade, and manufacturing. But we have a diversified economy, which again, given its sort of structural um, set of conditions, actually you would expect to be doing at least as well as the US economy and probably a little bit better. So again, what can explain this? I'm going to again suggest it's partially the fiscal situation. Um, Chicago has lots and lots of overlapping liabilities in terms of its government structure. Its pension fundedness is actually worse in most cases than most of the state pension funds are. If you take Chicago and blow up its population to that of Illinois, Chicago has pen unfunded pension liabilities about $120 billion, all right, given its population, if you were sort of to equate the two. So this is very, very significant level of pension unfundedness. And this is really spilling over already to Chicago's ability to go to market. So if you look at bond prices at this point, Illinois is already a fiscal disaster. So we're already paying well above AAA rated bond prices. You can see about 150 basis points above. Chicago's paying even higher prices going to market at this point. So this is being recognized by the, the, um, you know, the financial, the um, municipal fund companies and the ratings agencies that Chicago's got a significant problem and it isn't being corrected very quickly. If you do the same exercise again that Bill had done with Illinois, and you do it for Chicago, as you can see, the situation gets even worse if you're a Chicago resident. So you pile the Chicago gap on top of the state gap, and as you can see, you really start getting very distorted levels of taxation relative to many of the neighboring states, and that's going to be an issue going forward. Okay, so in summary, I think that fiscal issues are going to continue to dominate for both Illinois and Chicago's economy. Um, one of the interesting things is if you look at Chicago, what's happened in economic development, much of the attention recently has been bringing headquarters operations into the city and great deal of, of you know, excitement about doing this. Now, in many cases, unfortunately, this has been at the expense of suburban locations, so it's sort of a zero-sum game in terms of where these guys are relocating from. But in almost every case, companies are asking for significant tax concessions to be able to do these sorts of things. So they're essentially saying, we recognize the fiscal risk and what we want you to do is buy that down up front before we're gonna make any sort of moves. So there's a great deal of pressure right now to sort of give away tax base to try to attract any sort of economic development within the city. Again, if you look at Chicago's set of assets, Chicago's advantages, its financial structure, the education structure of the workers, all these other things, it should be a city that's doing much better than it is right now. And so the only thing 
I can come up with to explain why it isn't is, again, because of this fiscal uncertainty that's pretty widely recognized at this point. So until <laughs> you sort of mitigate these, some of these things, until you have a more certain plan as to how you would pay off some of these liabilities or exactly knowing what the magnitude of these liabilities are, I'm afraid Chicago is going to get lift again this year simply because, as Bill pointed out, you have a stronger macro economy that's going to give Chicago some lift. But it's not going to get the same lift as other places has. And it probably isn't going to get the same lift as it should, um, given, again, what the structure and the advantages that Chicago has as an economy. So thank you very much. And we're happy to take any questions you might have. So. Ah. Oops. We answered all your questions. That's right. <laughs> I think right. Adam, Adam, Adam has a question. Hello, hello. So, um, in terms of uh, in terms of lending, um, can you explain the relationship between um, the things that you all can do as the Fed and things that can stimulate more lending uh, to get some of that big reserve that you had up there in red out more into the uh, into the market? Yeah, I think um, we do that. Uh, so, for example, uh, at the start of, of this whole issue about these, these large reserves that were being held, um, the Fed in 2010 held 40 different uh, uh, gatherings around the country, bringing together uh, money center banks, regional banks, community banks, uh, as well as uh, consumer groups, and a lot of small businesses together. Also, everybody who kind of needs to access that, uh, that sector um, and tried to figure out what was going on with regard to uh, these loans. And some of it was that the pendulum had swung too far. Uh, there were some programs that the Fed encouraged, such as second look programs. So you, as a borrower, if you thought that uh, you were unfairly denied access to, well, to a loan, um, that you could have it kicked up to a higher level to have it reviewed. And um, uh, so we, we encourage that kind of activity. Um, during this time period, we also uh, suggested when we saw a lot of values being knocked down. Um, so as we know, it wasn't just housing that got hit, but a, a lot of commercial real estate and so forth. Um, a lot of loans were coming up for the term, and that would oftentimes be renewed. And the institutions were saying that, you know, the value of your property is no longer what it was when you first got the loan. Um, and yet we were encouraging them that if they've been paying on the loan and look at the company beyond just their assets they own, look at the amount of money they're bringing in, if you could justify it based on some of these maybe less traditional ways of, of, of viewing the, um, the profitability of a company or the assets of a company uh, to go ahead and do that. So um, I think that was helpful uh, to some degree. But ultimately, these loans, I mean, people don't just borrow because they want to borrow. They're borrowing because they want to uh, take advantage of opportunities. The lousy growing economy of just above 2% for the last four and a half years uh, has just not been sufficiently fast enough to really encourage a lot of businesses to roll the dice to expand operations. And if anything, the investments that we do hear about are investments that are designed to make them more efficient. Uh, so they're either being forced to for quality reasons or for cost-saving reasons uh, to, to make some investments. We, the number of opportunities of expanding for the needs of the market, so capacity increases, few and far between, unfortunately. Yeah, hi there. Uh, I had a question. I was interested to hear that you were talking about how inventories rose a lot during 2013. That was kind of where our production went when everything we've read about is how technology has allowed companies to decrease their inventories. There's so mm -hmm. much internet selling that companies are keeping less inventory. So I was wondering what the reasoning for the rise in inventories were. So it wasn't a 2013 story. It was a Q3 2013 story. Um, and, and, you know, so when you look at that one chart that I showed you with final sales, it just basically is showing that for the year as a whole, it's come in 
at around 2%. But GDP itself can be wildly fluctuating. This large swings in inventory is unfortunately not unusual. Businesses make bad guesses at times for what they perceive sales to be. Just think about the holiday season, right? Everybody was kind of monitoring, you know, whether or not they had bought enough, they buy too much. If they bought too much, then they have to start discounting earlier. It's that constant game that businesses have to make in terms of trying to figure out what the needs of their customers are. Uh, and the concern is that if you don't have it in stock and inventory and you can't deliver it to the market in a timely fashion, the cust you might lose a customer. So it's that, that constant uh, challenge of trying to, yes, minimize inventories, and yes, as a, uh, in general, as an inventory-to-GDP ratio, it has continued to come down, largely because of technology um, and the way we do our business. Um, but, <coughs> but it's really been a, a Q3 story, and I suspect that some of it will be a payback, if not the fourth quarter, then the first quarter. I keep hearing rumblings about um, mortgage rates uh, increasing this year, and I'm just curious what's driving that and um, how you see that affecting the housing market. Well, what's driving mortgage rate increases, I would suspect, would be demand. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, but ultimately also, you know, with regard to uh, what the Fed is, is doing with regard to its purchases pro purchasing program, we've announced that we'll be scaling back uh, moderately, slightly, on our purchase programs. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately, it's, uh, it's the supply and demand in, in the marketplace for, for, for mortgages. Come on, give Rick a question. <laughs> Something in uh, Illinois. Um, I had a question regarding the large blue area that we talked about in uh, comparison with the 30s versus ours. Um, and this may be naive, uh, but I'll ask it anyhow. Uh, is that is that money that's literally taken out of the economy by actions that the Fed is accomplishing? No, the exact opposite. Um, what we're doing is we're taking out financial instruments. Um, so what we're doing in that large blue area are bonds. Just keep it simple. Uh, which is a bond is a financial instrument, but not a monetary instrument. Uh, you can't pay your cost here with Maggiano's by giving them a treasury bond, right? You're going to have to give them the good old greenbacks. Um, so what we do is we take that financial instrument out of the market and in exchange give them money. And as we take our balance sheet down, <clears throat> that will reverse. Okay. Um, just to follow up on my last question, um, I'm, uh, I know I'm sure this is pretty oversimplified, but if um, if you guys have assets and you know the banks have assets, but they're holding on to them and not releasing them, it does seem like there are a lot of folks that do you know are looking for um, you know for loans for various things you know that would spur the economy. Um, is there any way to take some of the you know the assets that you all have and create more incentives for the banks to you know to lend? And again, probably oversimplified, but it seems like a lot of money is being held. And maybe there's some things that um, would be doable from an incentive standpoint to help the lenders, you know, get motivated. Well, again, to answer a very simplistic way, we are, you know, encouraging our examiners to, you know, look over a bank and, you know, their job is to make sure the bank remains healthy. To that end, they want to make sure the bank is making prudent uh, loans, loans that uh, have good covenants on them and loans that have a, a high likelihood of getting paid back. Um, you know, we, are, we absolutely would encourage banks to make those loans to those companies that uh, are, are uh, there. I mean, the only caveat I would add is part of what Rick was talking about with uncertainty. You know, the Dodd-Frank law, which was passed a number of years ago, has uh, instituted uh, a lot of rulemaking that needed to be done, which is still in the process of getting done. Every so often you will hear from a financial institution that, uh, you know, they are concerned that they don't quite understand the rules and they don't want to have to make a loan and all of a sudden it's discovered that that loan should not have been made or didn't meet certain requirements and now you have to be taken back on their books. Um, so there's some hesitancy there in this, in this field of uncertainty uh, in the banking sector. I think it's, that's also playing a part of what's going on. 
Well, and the one point that Bill also brought up, I mean, some people have said we could just drop the 0.25% the, uh, on excess reserves to zero, and then therefore there'd be no reason. But as he said, I mean, 0.25 is so negligible at this point, it's hard to suggest that that's really restraining banks from making loans. Uh, first of all, thanks for joining us. Really enjoy this program every year. But last night I happened to see former Secretary of Transportation Ray Hood on Channel 11 with another gentleman, and they were bemoaning the sorry state of infrastructure in our nation as well as the state of Illinois. They advocated a 10% increase in the gasoline tax or the fuels tax to uh, kind of fund infrastructure rebuild. I'm curious as to what your view would be nationally as well as in the state of Illinois of that program. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, the state of infrastructure is quite poor. If you look at any sort of trend funding, it's been pretty well straight down. And because the gasoline tax hasn't been indexed, I mean, actually, the, the some of the infrastructure trust funds will actually go negative in the next several years simply because they aren't being replenished through the gasoline tax at any sort of reasonable level. Um, you know, given the infrastructure is one of the key drivers of economic growth, I mean, lots of studies have looked at this. There's been a lot of suggestion that this is clearly where we need to shift some of our Money. I mean, part of the problem for a state like Illinois is when you get into as tight of a fiscal bind as we're in, you start deferring maintenance and you start deferring infrastructure because you're just trying to pay the daily bills. And that squeezes out the sort of productive use of government resources. And I think probably a similar thing has happened to the federal government as you've had emphasis on other things. You've also squeezed out infrastructure spending. I mean, whether or not a gasoline tax increase would necessarily solve this problem. I mean, in, in, in Chicago, I mean, one of the things the mayor's been a big advocate of is looking at public-private financing structures. Um, the Infrastructure Trust Fund Bank hasn't gotten off to a really great start in Chicago, but the idea there is, is simply to try to leverage more private resources for necessary infrastructure, and I think that kind of a model will be something that will be interesting if there's considerable resistance to raising taxes um, as, as the other option. Yeah, I mean, this, this lack of infrastructure investment is nothing new. It's been going on for decades. I would have thought that uh, when that bridge collapsed in, in Minneapolis, that would have been enough of a signal that we need to be doing this. The problem is, is it's, it's, um, to some degree, it's a political issue because, you know, it's not very sexy when you cut a ribbon having just uh, repaired a bridge, right? People, the government loves to build new things and have na naming things. And um, so there tends to be a prior to build, but not necessarily to maintain. That's not as sexy. I guess we'll take no more questions. Thank you, Rick and Bill, very much, and we'll see you all in February. Thank you.